0: Yeah, we had this sort of slightly drunken evening and they'd come up with this name and they were like, oh, it's, it means Mother Earth in African. As soon as they said African, I was like, what are you talking about? There's like hundreds of languages. So I Googled it and sure enough, it meant toilet in Swahili. So I was like, I don't think we'd get away with that. <laughs> Can you remember the name? It was Uwa. U-W-A. I mean, it does sound like Lua, which is kind yeah. of like toilet. Yeah, I think it was one of those sort of pub chat things that got a bit out of hand and then we were like, okay... But they didn't. then they came up with And, which we all really liked. Trials, tribulations, mistakes,
1: barriers, successes, and failures. Hear it here firsthand from those that have grown billion-dollar businesses to those that are just starting out. Winner of the Campaign Publishing Award for Best Business Podcast in the UK, Successes in the Mind is the only place where you can get a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. Everyone claims to be an entrepreneur, but can everyone live up to the title? What does it take to start a business, to get your product into a high street store, or grow a well managed team? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself. Join me as I interview business leaders and founders from across the globe, delving into what makes them tick, their differentiators, and intrinsic motivators. This is Success is in the Mind. Thank you so much to our headline sponsors for the year, Capsule Cover. Capsule Cover, a specialist insurance partner to growth businesses, supports some of the UK's most innovative and ambitious companies. Sponsoring each and every one of our podcasts, we're on a journey with Capsule, and so should you be. If you're a scale up or an ambitious high growth business, check out how Capsule Cover can help you with bespoke insurance solutions. Inquire via capsulecover.com and quote success22. In this episode, I speak to sustainable perfume and fragrance entrepreneur Simon Constantine. Founder of And Fragrance, Simon is a man on a mission to help indigenous communities to preserve their endangered ecosystems by sustainably sourcing raw materials. Simon, who worked for his parents' business Lush for nearly 20 years, decided to go it alone in May 2019. Working in tandem with his father, Mark Constantine, who founded Lush, Simon is best known for creating the most challenging Lush scents, among them the acclaimed Breath of God. In this Christmas episode of Successes in the Mind, I asked Simon how hard it was going from one of the UK's favourite brands into the world of startup. what does the future of perfume and fragrance sourcing look like, and what was his initial brand name, which meant Toilet, in Swahili. Ladies and gentlemen, fragrance entrepreneur, Simon Constantine. Hi, how are you doing? I'm really well. Happy Christmas. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas to you. Obviously, you're the son of of the founders of Lush, Mark Constantine. You are Simon Constantine. You worked for Lush for 20-odd years before jumping ship in May 2019 and starting your own business and fragrance. What was it like working for Lush for such a large business brand, one of the UK's favourite brands, to then starting something that nobody had heard of?
0: Uh, It's pretty daunting, as you can imagine, uh, especially with a sort of family connection and kind of... uh, and everything that goes with it, but to be honest, you know, actually Lush wasn't the first business that I saw my parents kind of co-found. If you like, they worked. You know, I was basically born into our house was a factory. So um, <laughs> when I was born, the first my first memories are of Mum and Dad in the shed or out the back. Um, sometimes it wasn't actually legal for them to be manufacturing cosmetics at home. I think they did get caught in the end and had to get a proper factory. But up until then, until I was about two or three years old, I was completely surrounded by, you know, startup business, really. So I think it's at that point, it's in your blood. So it didn't, it felt daunting, but also quite natural.
1: Because, I mean, in terms of what they were doing prior to Lush or prior to the first business that they co-founded then, what what was that? Because they founded Lush in 1995 and, you know, you, you perfectly led me into that question. You must have been born into that entrepreneurial world.
0: Yeah, up until, so from when I was born, they had a company called Constantine & Weir, which was um, a small beauty company, and uh, they had their shop on Paul High Street. They started to supply, uh, by the time I came along, I think they were supplying Body Shop, when Body Shop was still quite a young, you know, very young business when they first supplied and was still quite young. And they worked very hand-in-glove with Body Shop, creating, you know, lots of exciting products and uh, championing things like uh, non-animal testing, and environmentalism and all the all the things that Body Shop became so well known for, uh, and then they parted company as a supplier with Body Shop, and uh, started another business which was almost run entirely off of um, crazy ideas that Body Shop didn't want, and it was called Cosmetics <laughs> to Go, and then that went uh, went under in the sort of recessions of the '90s. There was a series of kind of uh, sort of tragedies, if you like, within the business that led to it folding. And lush came out of that.
1: Wow, okay. So it was kind of, uh, it was very much like what we've just been through with the pandemic, the ups and downs. So did you go into the the pandemic with a a kind of different view, different vision? I mean, you started and fragrance during the midst of the pandemic. Was that just simply because you weren't scared having seen what your parents had gone through?
0: I think there's a mixture of, uh, in fact, my dad's mentioned it before as well, of being mildly stupid, (laughs) naive. Yes. But it turns out it's mostly stupid. <laughs> Do you know I mean? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think, uh, so we actually, we, we, we had the plans in the works. So I w- I'd already been working with um, Chris Morey, who's um, my co-founder for, and fragrance. So he, he's really sort of the marketing and brand side of things. We've been working on this concept for a number of months. And obviously, nobody plans for a pandemic to sort of come along right when you're about ready to launch. We were, you know, we got to March and we were like, oh, OK, we bought all the packaging. We've got all the material. We're we're not far off being able to launch. And then and then the dreaded COVID came along um, and we had to sort of make a decision. Are we, you know, is it too frivolous for us to be doing this right now? Which we actually was our first decision say, so look, you know, there's a really serious event happening here, launching a, a fragrance brand in the middle of it. Is that really what people are going to want? But because of the way we structured And and because of the the ethical nature of it and the project partners, we actually got in touch with a number of them and said, you know, like, how are you guys doing? Just genuinely reaching out and making sure everybody was all right. And uh, one of the uh, the project partners over in the east of, Am- of the Amazon in Brazil said that they were really worried about the impacts of COVID. And so it really actually changed our shift. We were going to do a fundraiser as part of our initial uh, launch offering for, for the brand and just to sort of set the tone if you like even if we weren't there financially to be able to support ongoing communities right at the very startup phase we wanted to set that tone and they came back and said that they wanted uh, they could really do a PPE because back then COVID hadn't arrived uh, a lot of remote tribal communities so we yeah we didn't actually feel as frivolous at that point felt like people actually were interested in it.
1: But did you not do some kind of fundraise around the PPE side of things for the third world and, and, again, those that were more disadvantaged?
0: Yeah, so the this initial offering was only 100 bottles. I was doing them at that point in my lounge, um, so we we were kind of all crammed in. <laughs> I just spent this last week cleaning up after moving, finally moving everything out of our... Our lounge because um, oh, well done big milestone yeah yes it was nice actually it was nice <laughs> found you know all sorts of things tucked down back of the sofa and, and yes so we, we were all sort of piled in there and uh we did the first hundred bottles um uh, which we sold very quickly actually which we really uh, which was a good indication of how people felt at that point they wanted to sort of still support one another even if they couldn't physically and fragrance was kind of an interesting way of connecting people To that. And so, yeah, the first 100 bottles, which was um, about three and a bit thousand pounds, I think we managed to raise. And all that money went to for PPE for the Kaipo via the Rowney Institute. So, um, the Kaipo are the people who actually we we source our Tonka from that goes into the product, which is bean. So, there was this reciprocal kind of loop. It felt like we were, it was self supporting at that point it's
1: really interesting we'll get into later on how you ethically source I suppose the the fragrance side of things and the raw materials but dialling back the clock ever so slightly to when you were growing up and around that dining room table your your parents were obviously focusing heavily on building their brand building their business as a child where did that put you did it put you to one side did you go to boarding school what was your kind of actual childhood like
0: uh no i didn't go to boarding school no they didn't ship you off then no they what was really nice about about having parents with the business is everybody assumes you have the silver spoon Yeah, yeah yeah but you don't yeah and you have almost i wouldn't say the exact opposite i wouldn't say you know but there's definitely tough times i like to call it a
1: rusty fork rather than a silver spoon
0: yeah this normally sort of stabbed into you at some point <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you've been exactly. yeah <laughs> so i think actually that there is a lot of uh, bumps in the road and the only, I, I i think probably on reflection as i as, as i left lush and, and started out i kind of looked at the impact of having a business like that as part of your everyday life and it really becomes kind of another family member so it, at that point it became almost like I've got two siblings so it became like a, the fourth sibling if you like uh, around you do chat about it around the kitchen table it would be a, it still is a conversation point if I see everybody we still talk about um, last year I've still got connections there and it was a bit kind of it's almost a bit false to say you've resigned because it's a bit like quitting your family (laughs) as much as you'd like to. Do you know what I mean? At different points, it's a bit difficult to sort of fire your mum. God, I
1: wish I could do that.
0: It's always been a... I would consider it more of a family member, actually, than than a straightforward... Business, but in terms of
1: going into the business, then because essentially you'd been at Lush for twenty odd years, you'd worked your way all the way up to the top in terms of sitting on the board. You know, you were you were famed for working alongside your dad, looking at those complex ingredients, looking at those ethical kind of sourcing mechanisms. Would you have done what you're doing now had it not been for that? Would you have even gone into the world of fragrance?
0: I think it's really interesting because I have sort of asked the question to myself a few times, and I think my general interests. I mean, I was very lucky actually which is evident, but incredibly privileged and lucky to have a business like Lush to be able to sort of um, be a part of. And the opportunities that arose were, were genuine opportunities. They were opportunities at the time to get involved in fragrance and to get involved in ethical ingredients because there were issues in a small and growing business. You know, when I joined... Um, I can't remember what size Lush was, but I don't think it broke sort of twenty million turnover at that point. So still reasonable, but it was it, and it was on, definitely on the up. But the, the curve was incredibly steep at that at that time. And having watched how my mum and dad work and and that that founding team, they really do like to champion people from the factory floor, from the shop floor, and bring them on. So it felt more like you were in the mix with everybody and the opportunities that came along were just absolutely amazing and they were things i'm genuinely interested in i went to art college i was interested in uh, in the artistic expression of fragrance i was interested in travel interested in where things came from and and fair trade so it just felt like it's hard to detach yourself from your journey at that point
1: talk to me about the guerrilla perfume side that you sort of headed up with with your dad mark in terms of what that was because you know you had the breath of god as a as a famed perfume which you guys obviously obviously rolled out. Now, you know, why did you decide to go on that completely different tangent from the pretty bath bombs that we know Lush for down to this quite aggressive and and kind of you know, kind of well, guerrilla orientated branding. Yeah, I mean, when you're
0: saying <laughs> I think you're assuming there was a logical straight path to the (laughs) the creative process right and uh, although I'd love to think that that is how my mind works I I think it doesn't (laughs) there's a lot where people look in I always get this impression people are going what why is he doing that now what's he doing now (laughs) that doesn't make sense but Gorilla was really a part of that kind of evolution if you like there was a there was the obvious thing to do with perfume in Lush and then I think it being where the way our family being the way it is, the people within the business being the way they are, then there was the interesting thing to do, and to take fragrance and put it alongside other creative um, outlets and and sort of ex, more expressive and and kind of really at that point we were looking at music and at kind of street art and a lot of those kind of influences and seeing how that bleeds into fragrance and how fragrance actually. It doesn't have to be a pure marketing exercise, which was our biggest ch- uh, chip on our shoulder at that point, it's just over a decade ago, just saying there's very little in the, the sort of niche artisan world. What? Why isn't there a thriving underground like there is with music or art or even cooking or, or fashion? You know, like, why is it that it's a sort of afterthought? So that was where that came from.
1: Because you've, you've kind of taken elements of Guerrilla Perfumes into and fragrance from a visual standpoint it looks quite similar you can kind of see the synergy there was that again logical or was that totally illogical and accidental
0: that was actually because chris and the, his colleague chris they both have marketing backgrounds and they kind of took on the branding and marketing side and came up with this really kind of um, punky look and this sort of edgy and and there is an aggressive tone in there still i think in terms of a frustrated Kind of the world stinks kind of tone, unfortunately, I think they channeled me and uh, and we've ended up <laughs> in that kind of yeah, if I'm the muse, if you like for that for those uh for those guys, I think that's why we've ended up in a i would say it's a an evolved place, but there are definite nods to gorilla. And there's definitely, you know, huge nods to my past and, and kind of what I've done in the past.
1: 100%. And and you said when you joined Lush, it was just teetering on the edge of maybe 20 million revenue. It went way, way, way beyond that. But then you obviously jumped ship to go and start and Fragrance. What was it like going from such a structured, high turnover business to something which essentially you have said last week you finished clearing out your front room? You're literally back at home. What's it like going with
0: that? It's Sometimes it's really exciting and interesting and other times it's very familiar like I say my you know our kitchen or my mum's shed or you know the house when I was growing up was very similar to our our house has been in the last couple of years with homeschooling kids we weren't homeschooled but you've got kids around you've got all of this stuff going on and it was all very kind of blended so um from that perspective it has been familiar but also yeah it's very challenging and it's also i I sometimes forget how far we came with lush and how far you go back to to starting again and you have to kind of ground yourself pretty often oh no i can't i can't do this you know beautiful campaign i can't do this beautiful thing that i'd like to do right now because we you know we're trying to actually get a business started here which i get reminded of again by chris my my business partner he reminds me of that quite often and in terms of you working with your business partner chris and
1: him running a large proportion of the marketing and the branding what was the brand name that meant toilet in swahili
0: yeah we had this sort of slightly drunken evening where (laughs) the the two chrises as i'm now going to call them and and myself yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, we were we were out we would yeah we were kind of chatting about it and they'd come up with this name and they were definitely keen on it and I was like, I'm really not, I don't know. And they were like, oh, it's, it means uh, Mother Earth in African. Straight, as soon as they said African, I was like, what are you talking about? There's like hundreds of languages. You know, like I've traveled it quite extensively. It's like, that doesn't mean anything, African. Yes. So I Googled it, and sure enough, it meant toilet in Swahili. So I was like, I don't think we get away with that. <laughs> Can you remember the name? Uh, it was Uwa, U-W-A. I mean, it does sound like Lua, which is kind yeah. of toilet. Yeah, I think it was one of those sort of pub chat things that got a bit out of hand, and then we we're like, okay, but they then then they came up with and, which we all really liked. So talk to me about the methodology though, around and because it is so so unique. Well, we were looking at the we're looking for a word that you know I'm very interested in this topic, which is this move beyond sustainable to regenerative. I think this becoming um, more well known. You have got regenerative agriculture and, all that. and and this this kind of move is always about plus it was always something and it was always about evolution and moving forwards and natural patterns and all of these kind of things so when the word came up you had the the word we all know generally as and as this kind of plus feel which I liked but then when we went deeper on the kind of background of it it was this Nordic English word I say Nordic English because the way I looked at it was we weren't appropriating that word because it was brought over to England by nutcase raiders uh, from you know, so but yeah, you know, I don't where we the that bit out. Yeah, that's on in the sort of you know a thousand years ago. Yeah, there um, go. Um And that meant in general means ghost and spirit and breath, and so we quite like that kind of connotation and and kind of that that path. And I'm sure there's plenty of linguists out there that will say no, that doesn't quite mean that, which is also fair enough. <laughs> that's, that's what that's what their intention is yeah well exactly If it, that's, that's
1: the logic behind it anyway it's explainable yeah. which would pass I think in a GCSE an exam if you can explain the logic behind it so in terms of where you want to go then in terms of scale do you want to have 900-odd stores? Do you want to be based? Just endorse it and go online. I tried to find you guys on other e-commerce websites.
0: It's only your own brand website that you can buy your product on. That's right. At the moment, we are just on our, our website, Um <laughs> And uh, we have our outlet in Paul. We've been very lucky then to be invited into uh, uh, Debenhams Revamp, which was, as Debenhams fell away, Bobby's um, came in to uh into Bournemouth so Bournemouth is just up the road from and um it's an independent store that's been taken over by a property developer and then they've brought Bobby's back which was what was in the building before Debenhams had it so right. this is really interesting proposition this is what I mean we found ourselves in really interesting spaces there and I'm I'm fascinated with how we kind of then navigate this this market out we are uh, chatting with distributors we are looking at so we are actually stocked in australia at the moment and we've been very opportunistic people have approached us and we've said uh yeah let's give that a go and and that's been quite interesting so we are in talks so our next phase really is about setting up this distribution so that we are available in more places and not that there's anything wrong with paul high street in terms of australia and international expansion
1: why why go to australia and, and not focus on conquering the uk's distribution first do you think you're going to take on too much?
0: I don't think we will at the moment because we've got quite a kind of tight rein on it. It's it's manageable from that perspective. I think that, that that is a very good question and it's something that I think comes back to this kind of scale thing of being used to a certain scale and going, Oh, hang on. If there's only four of you, you can't pull off nineteen different markets all at once. So it's kind of about sustained growth. So I think you, yeah, and this is, a, it's almost like you've been sat in the room with me and Chris. Uh, we were, yeah, we've, we've both actually ebbed, but we, we changed seats a little bit on that. Some days he's saying, oh, you know, we should be in America now. We should be doing that. And other days I am. And then we're saying, no, nope, let's focus on UK. Uh, Europe seemed like an easy task, actually, until Brexit finally crunched. Uh, and now we can't. Yeah, we're struggling to ship anything there, so that's another set of hurdles. So there's, you know, it's very, and with such uncertain times, we're taking little opportunities and then maintaining a sort of basic strategy of, like you say, let's get UK sorted out, let's look at look at this market, let's look at that market.
1: We look at COP26 now and we look at the way the world is understanding, finally, just about maybe, um, you know, environmentalism and making sure that the world is sustainable. Now, looking at what you're doing from, for the fragrance and perfume industry fundamentally, you're making sure that the raw materials are sourced ethically and sustainably, right? That is quite before the time because there's not many perfume Uh, manufacturers or brands out there that are you know pushing this line as hard as you are do you think this is the future
0: well I, I certainly think you know if we we've talked about Lush and the journey that that I kind of was a part of there was a lot of what is now very poignant and very current people at Lush tended to be quite far ahead of the time so a lot of the formulations a lot of the kind of creativity a lot of the branding a lot of the focus It could be anything from non-animal testing to regenerative agriculture to uh, shampoo bars. I I got approached the other day by a marketing guy who had a report on the shampoo bar market. And I remember when my mum invented it in 1988 in the shed. And now there's people... You know, getting money from telling you about uh, the shampoo bar market. I did sort of send him a facetious email, but you didn't get it. <laughs> Go on, what did the email say? Uh, I just sort of said, "Well, I do remember making them in my she- in my mum's shed for my summer holidays." Blah blah blah, and uh, <laughs> I, didn't I wish get you the right. best of luck. Exactly. Yes, yeah, it was a bit like that. I didn't swear, but, yeah. <laughs> but spam exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so I do think, yeah. So I, I think um, with with and there is a driving purpose. There is. a there is a reason why we're a little bit thorny, a little bit pointy and saying, look, to the industry is that we don't have the same timescale that Lush had when it was trying to challenge the cosmetics industry to go naked and remove packaging or to use ethical ingredients and to all this stuff. We don't have that time. So I would see as, you know, I was looking at my position, looking at fine fragrance, looking at the resources that's available to a luxury market that's very profitable, but they choose to spend their money on the wrong things. And it's like, okay, we'll put that resource behind really partnering with people who know how to look after the environment. So we're, it's not just about the ethical ingredients, it's about the partnership with those individuals and groups and communities that can do the work that actually will help save us.
1: And in terms of how profitable the industry is in in 2020, and again, being the Christmas episode, you you, you gave away 20% of your net profit to essentially a a sustainable frankincense sourcing, which you named FFS, which obviously most will understand is not what you've called it for Frank's sake. Um, But
0: genius move. Is that something you're going to do again for Christmas 21? At the moment, we haven't decided on that, but we would like to do some more fundraising. But the 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 work with frankincense communities is is something it was actually kind of a part of the catalyst for me to start and in the first place I'd been as part of a lush trip we went out to Somaliland um, we saw frankincense uh, we saw the issues with frankincense and we saw the issues with the the uh, with climate change impacting on communities there it wasn't just frankincense it was also um, uh, in terms of Somaliland you have pastoral nomadic Herders who had lost their lost their herds, and so you started to see this impact of climate change impacting communities, creating displaced communities. Those displaced communities then require aid, which is difficult to de- deliver in a community in Somalia. And in general, um, it was the, this feeling that. We have to be able to act fast and, and kind of do things quickly. So to be able to raise funds, and the obvious thing, it's a little bit simplistic, but frankincense doesn't rejuvenate very easily in the wild. It takes a long time to grow. It can be grazed. It can be over-harvested, which is the issue that we're worrying about now um, in that it puts too much pressure because, uh, I don't know, it's interesting with frankincense in particular. Coming up to Christmas, everybody knows frankincense. Everyone goes, of course I know frankincense. And then you say, okay, what is it? And then everyone goes... Oh, actually, I don't know. I just remember singing about it, and and it just goes with and Myrrh, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. And I think people remember dressing up as the star or the <laughs> shepherd or you know whatever, and then they go. Actually, I was I... the horse, <laughs> or the donkey. Okay, I don't know if we read too much into that Does or that, not. I mean, you know, what were you? Uh, you know what? I was the donkey. Now yeah, I think well, about it's where you say you're Jesus. Yes. No, I never got. <laughs> no, no, I don't think I got. I think I managed to get maybe two lines in a nativity. I've always sort of been slightly begrudging of that, but <laughs> yes, I didn't even get one. But yeah, I think with frankincense, it's just a very interesting ingredient, and the fact that you could start to replant these and, and bring some life back to your community is great. So, go on. What is frankincense? It is a resin. So it is a sticky
1: sap that comes actually, from... I, actually, I knew this. I knew this, okay. Simon. I did know it was a resin because it's a bit like sap, isn't it? Where you, And I remember at school you have bugs in sap and it's that kind of colour.
0: Yeah. Is it similar to that? Yes, it's, it's very similar, yeah. It's not quite the sort of Jurassic Park amber, but it's a sort of... it's. They call them golden tears. So you, you'd you mark the tree, you, you'd slice the tree, you'd leave it for a few days, maybe a week or two, come back and then you have a look at the, the sap that's sort of hardened on the outside of the tree and collect that. And that's the, that's the oil-rich resin. And then that gets sorted, and then you can use that either just as incense, which is still a very popular material, or as essential oil that can go into perfume.
1: Okay, I've actually amazed myself that I knew vaguely what frankincense was, and I think everyone in here is also completely baffled. But in, in terms of sustainability and the way that you know people are talking more and more about this, Prince William's Earthshot only recently awarded a couple of million quid to individuals in different, work, in different nations, essentially. How has banging the drum of sustainability changed over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years and indeed over your career?
0: It's a good question because it's it's something that, it, it's an interesting, as I mentioned, you know, like feeling like you were sort of on the, the front end, if you like, of a particular movement for a while and as that suddenly becomes mainstream, um, you have this conflicting where you quite enjoyed it being niche and you knowing all this stuff, and then all of a sudden, it's back it's out in the wider world, and everybody's got an opinion. And actually, some of what I've been doing, or other people have been doing, it may be challenged, or it may need to be updated. So, which really, fundamentally, is exactly what you want. It, it, you want a shampoo bar market. You want a, the fragrance sector to sort of get annoyed with you and start doing all the sustainability stuff because it will take every single person and every single effort to be able to really start putting the world right. Um, and and I think that. From that perspective, it's quite it's encouraging. I don't always know whether it's going to come from the top. I don't know if COP 26 will be the the panacea that everybody wants it to be. I think that actually, their individual action and group groups of individuals is really this kind of the most successful thing I've seen. Communities really rising up to a task and and developing that businesses rising up to a task and and developing those resources is and that I think makes me nervous because I want it to be done perfectly but at the same time it can't you can't be like that about it and i think it also makes me excited that so many more people are moving into that that sphere but it has to be done genuinely uh, the the greenwashing and all that still goes on but i think people themselves as customers as consumers are becoming much much more savvy and are demanding a huge amount more so I think all oh, that's great. What's the one
1: thing that businesses should be fundamentally focusing on in order to achieve that over time?
0: I think it's it is really kind of uh, the restoration of the natural world. I think that if you if you really get down to it, although there's lots of technological fixes which I can't even pretend to understand half of them, <laughs> um, I, th- I think that what the crisis that really is emerging is that we, as a as a civilization as a society, we haven't got the knack of enriching life. And it's that that is missing. So we've got the knack of extracting it, making it into something else, trading it, uh, incredible economies, incredible universities, all this sort of stuff. But if you look at why I'm interested in indigenous communities is they have existed within their ecosphere for millennia in, in many cases and have had to fit to a life-giving way of of living. And I think that is the, the number one. So ecological land restoration and bringing back extinct species I don't mean kind of dinosaurs but I do mean kind of species that were lacking in your landscape say rewilding all of these kind of aspects and they then will sequester carbon and they will but they will give you so much more so I think that that is the that would be my number one
1: in terms of throwing the towel in has your wife ever said to you yeah bugger this this isn't going to work for me have you ever thought actually i can't be bothered to do it anymore i'm gonna just go into another avenue or do something completely
0: different uh no actually i haven't maybe i should have yes now now you're mentioning (laughs) it it's kind of oh don't let me influence it Simon. it's gonna be slightly awkward podcast by the end i'm not doing what i started (laughs) exactly resigned yeah, no i haven't i haven't thought about that no because i feel like i i am at this point very passionate about the things that i'm doing and i also know that it's a long game there isn't a, a quick way around and and oddly enough although fragrance is a big industry and it's well catered for and there's lots of new releases and all that sort of stuff when you really drill down into it it's um i think it was said best by a, a lady that i talked to who said it's intangible and it takes time for people to really associate themselves with perfume and feel comfortable with it and it becomes a signature and it, you know it's not the same as a cosmetic and this is the other difference it's not the same if you buy something that you think is going to be good for dry skin you can see it's got an impact on your skin then and there yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you buy fragrance it's definitely something that you know what we see is this journey where people come in they try a bit they come back later and it is something that gradually sort of they succumb to so it's really we know it's a long burn so I'm, I'm Two years in, but it, you know, over two years in, but it's, it really is only just starting.
1: And can you see genuine growth or is there an element of just plateau or sort of, you know, stagnating at the moment in terms of whilst that market becomes aware of what you
0: guys are, obviously people aren't necessarily going to come back in swathes. Can you see it growing over the next couple of months? Uh, yeah, we've definitely, we've definitely seen growth. I think we've got, you know, both from this distribution point of view, you can see kind of buying habits have shifted a bit. I think they were more comfortable online. And now they're kind of interested in the shop or interested in in seeing product up close because that was our the concern was would people even buy perfume online during a pandemic? But they did. Uh, and then we're seeing growth and we're seeing kind of nice, healthy growth. I think stuff that we you can actually is sustainable for a small team. Um and, yeah, it does feel like we're getting people repeat customers and, you, you know, the the sampling and all the things that you know are kind of starting to really work. So, yeah.
1: That's good. And in, ter- in terms of your team, you've got a team of four at the moment of which your wife is one of them. Chris, I'm assuming, is your, your business partner, is the other. Who's the, uh, the fourth, the other Chris, Chris Squared?
0: Uh, yeah, we have, yes. Yeah, so we have Chris and Chris, me and Vicky, and then we have... Um, uh, a small team in the shop we have Sue who's working on our PR with a uh, guy Josh doing some social media and then um Martha and Katie in the shop oh right and okay. then yeah and then Chris has a, a favors that he draws on uh from several people that um remain nameless for now <laughs> <laughs> and you've managed to
1: do all of this with less than 100,000 quid with all of those team members
0: yeah it's been quite a nice sort of juggling act I'd say.
1: That's incredible. That is incredible. And in terms of, I suppose, from an upskilling point of view, have you ever had to look at the business and go, right, I don't actually understand this element because I've never dealt with it before from an accountancy point of view or from a management point of view and have to actually upskill and learn above and beyond what you initially thought?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, one of the other things that I, was, that I felt like it was the right time for me to strike out on my own was this opportunity to understand establishing a business in full. You know, having grown up within the business is incredible, and I've learned a lot along the way, and I've seen most aspects of it. But actually, to create something yourself and then be involved in all the the elements, and when you get to a very large company, it's very difficult. You know, if their silos emerge. You get all these kind of, and it's all very complex. And at a very small level, you can do a little bit of everything. So, yeah, yeah. from that point of view, I quite enjoyed the sort of multitasking of it. Um, but having said that, quite quickly it's been evident what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. Go on, what are you bad at? Uh, well, the, I can make a perfume, no problem. Can I fill a bottle and make sure it doesn't leak? That's slightly more of an issue. <laughs> uh, I did try that very briefly and I was warned off doing that. How hard can it be to just put some liquid in a bottle? That's what I was told uh, when all my bottles leaked. Right, uh, and That's exactly the comments that were made, were made I mean, to me. All
1: I've ever filled up is a glass of water and you know that tends not to leak but in terms of your fragrance bottles what's the process
0: that's different there it's not particularly complex i'll be honest i'm just really bad at it Uh, (laughs) we have got a good team that are willing to sort of do it do it and do a good job so i'm very grateful is that like when you go and
1: make a cup of tea for your team and you make it badly so they don't ask you again did you strategically cock it up
0: there's a touch of that yeah we sort of like you do the washing up badly enough and people just don't bother asking you ever again but yeah, without pushing it so far, they never allow you in the building. So <laughs> I was sort of in that camp. And they, they were, I'm not, you know, my wife was not keen to have me on the shop floor. Um, I kind of a little bit, as you remember, Black Books and Bernard Black, you know, there's that kind of, sometimes I can be like, oh, and then I've got people coming in and they want to buy stuff. And then I've got to restock everything and then <laughs> fill it. And it's like, she's like, that's not the best attitude. Yeah, you? yeah, you're trying <laughs> to sell this stuff, not order yeah. it. Yeah. So I'm a back house guy, I think. What do you reckon
1: you wish you'd learned or known, I suppose, when starting? And what was the first thing that you
0: learned that you took with you? Uh, well, apart from that, there was a global pandemic imminently coming across <laughs> the, over the horizon. Apart from that, I think just my patience levels. I'm, I, I, never thought I was overly patient, but I thought I had kind of, I was quite methodical. But I, especially in the first sort of twelve to eighteen months, I just get, I just wanted to get ahead of myself. And uh, it's taken the time to sort of settle in and go. No, this is the pace. This is this is what it's all about.
1: And do you think post-pandemic you're going to be even quicker though, because the world is back up to speed and you've just had to slow yourself down ever so
0: slightly? Actually, I think it. it I think when I look at it, I think that we probably we have been at because I've also had a few other projects that I've been working on. So we have been at a point where th- that probably is what we can cope with at the moment and I think and it's healthy and it like you say it's growth and and moving in the right direction. So I think for where we're at, I think it's been perfect. And then, you know, then it will be I think I had a series of sort of oh I still have a series of markers in my mind where, you know, they're almost like gateways. This is just experience from watching businesses grow, you know, that at certain kind of rough turnover points, you know, you get to a certain viability here and you get to a certain series of Problems there, and yeah. And what what do they look like? You say that you've seen those in
1: previous businesses. Then over those over the next forthcoming two, three, four, five years, what are those forecast issues that you have to deal with?
0: I think it's sort of intriguing to look at. Is big better? You know, I think there is that inherent thing where going being bigger is better. You can have more impact. You can do all these things, and definitely to a certain point that is true. But having kind of seen everything from from literally, you know, a hundred thousand turnover through to a billion, um, looking at that. That spectrum. There are certain points on there where they bring as many challenges as they bring benefits, and it could be anything. You know, it could be you have shareholder issues, or it could be that you have growth issues, and you how do you keep up with the demand, or you know, all of these kind of different pieces. They all bring challenges. So, and they're all kind of embedded even in a small business. I look at a small business, and I'm surrounded by them here and elsewhere, and I look at Lush as a larger business. Think those same challenges are there. Getting you know, getting messages through a company. Starts from as soon as you've got one employee, and it doesn't get any easier until you have thirty thousand. So, you know those kind of those kind of things. They just they just are you know human nature kind of things. So, in terms of I mean looking at yourself as it, from a human nature standpoint or an
1: individual element, you say you get frustrated. You say that you know if you're not going quick enough, it annoys you basically. How do you actually manage? I suppose ordering all the things that you want to do and
0: delegating to people accordingly. Well, it depends who you ask. Yeah. If you ask me, I think I do a wonderful job. What would Chris say? Yeah, uh, what would Chris say? He'd say, will you please leave me alone? I've just got back off holiday, and you've already got a list of about five hundred things to do." <laughs> uh, and if you talk to my wife, she's kind of like, "Can you just, can you just dial it down a notch?" In fact, we've had those kind of conversations where it's kind of, "Can you just." Turn it down, maybe yeah. just sort of ten to twenty percent. Come back to me next week,
1: please. I need to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, 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 But in terms of how you you manage yourself, then obviously from from external point of view, fine. They might not think you do it that well. But how do you qualify, quantify, and actually make sure you do
0: things methodically? It's. I, I think it's that would be the biggest difference I'd say between working in a large company versus starting something yourself. You've got to be so much more economical with your time, even though I think there's this, you know, I think with business, there's always this inference that everybody's so kind of regimented and, and clip-clop and all that. But actually, I found it that you don't really have that time available to you when you're in a small startup business because, because of the sheer number of tasks that need to be done in a day. I want very many more to-do lists and, and I've kind of been so much busier from that perspective Just in kind of solving problems and overcoming things, and they, I don't feel like that's brought stress. So I would say that I don't feel like that's a huge stress on me. But I do feel like it's kind of there's lots and lots of kind of tasks to to do, and you have to be very economical, and you have to step back regularly, look at what you're doing, say, okay, I'm worrying about the bins out the back, but should I actually be worrying about signing this uh, distribution deal or do you know what I mean? So making sure that you're kind of constantly making all of those decisions move you forwards. In terms of of mental health, massive subject at the moment.
1: People are talking about it, and rightly so. How has starting a business impacted your mental health? Because it
0: does take a huge toll on an individual. Actually, I felt like it boosted my mental health, which sounds kind of... Was it that bad working for your dad? Christ. uh, Well... There was that. But that I think that the me being able to sort of start out on my own meant I was, as, some, as Vicky's auntie actually said, captain of my own canoe, which it definitely felt like. It definitely felt like uh, being in a very small seagoing vessel as a tsunami came in uh, and just paddling like crazy and hoping that you sort of catch the wave and not come succumb to it. But having said that, I have felt that um, for a number of different reasons, I think. And I think that it's been able to sort of be master of your own destiny. I think that that suits my personality a bit more. And I think being able to sort of control those aspects of things. Um, there are a number of things at Lush which, uh, that had become very tough for me in that, in that regard. I also think that I knew more concisely what I want to achieve. Which also helps. So a much more singular um, in and so if you were asking going back to Gorilla and the difference with Gorilla to And is that I brought the different elements of my kind of thinking and, and passion into that. So the ethical ingredients and solving climate change issues and kind of focus on, on that as part of my day to day as well as the fragrance, all in the same space is what I wanted to do.
1: What does I suppose happiness and success then look like to you? Is it the legacy of your kids joining the business over time?
0: I wouldn't have said I've I think I mean it's interesting because I was never actually pushed into working at Lush and neither were my siblings Uh, we all kind of found our way in and that's I think uh, you know going back to that question you asked about passion and would I've been doing this thing well probably not but definitely we attached our passions to the, the opportunities that were there in the business at the time And for my children I think that ultimately really what I'm focused on and interested in is is kind of making sure that I've made every effort I can in terms of the ecological health of the planet and um, and kind of what that looks like. That is more my priority and, and using, but having a, a nice business that kind of does that, I think would be something that could be an asset for them, but they don't have to work in it or do anything like that. I don't have a full succession plan there.
1: In terms of Christmas, okay. Just around the corner. <laughs> what, what What is the best perfume for Christmas?
0: Any of mine. <laughs> I would say, well, frankincense is the obvious one. So we've got, ours is called Frank. So it, it's as simple as that. And it's frankincense from Somaliland. Uh, I would also say bean has a nice warm kind of, so it's tonka, which is like this nice warm vanilla hay kind of note that's got a little touch of fennel, orange, and it's kind of got that nice Christmassy vibe. Or if the weather's poor, you know, if it's cold and rainy or snowing then bear which is um, Douglas fir shore pine and western red cedar so you've got this kind of nice almost Christmas tree oh, it sounds quite Canadian it is It is Canadian it's from the Great Bear Rainforest in Canada I'm, I'm baffled that I knew what frankincense was
1: and I've just guessed a perfume honestly I'm in the wrong business Simon if there's ever an opening just give me a bell how can we find you guys to buy your
0: perfume and is the, the easiest way online and then we have our shop it's on Kingland Crescent in Poole High Street uh, we're in Bobby's in Bournemouth and we, we'll hopefully be looking at new and broader distribution soon. Wonderful. Simon, have a great Christmas with the family. I will speak to you hopefully very soon. Thank you very
1: much. Take care. Thanks for listening. Coming up next week. Oliver,
0: business is risky. You've got to read the situation at the time. You've got to be willing to back yourself and you've got to have enough money to be able to to pull it off. As we've grown, our, I think our opportunities have got bigger and our horizons have Extended out. Always, we've tried to be a financially sound business.
1: Thank you so much to our headline sponsors for the year, Capsule Cover.
0: Capsule Cover, a specialist
1: insurance partner to growth businesses, supports some of the UK's most innovative and ambitious companies. Sponsoring each and every one of our podcasts, we're on a journey with Capsule, and so should you be. If you're a scale up or an ambitious high growth business, check out how Capsule Cover can help you with bespoke insurance solutions. Inquire via capsulecover.com and quote success22. See you next week, 8am on all podcast platforms. Simply subscribe or ask your smart speaker to play Success Is In The Mind podcast. This is a Pinpoint Media podcast presented by me, Oliver Bruce, produced by Dan Miller and Fergus Bruce, edited and designed by Harry Fox and Victoria Bramwell, filmed by Madeline Harris, marketed by Ellie Hanwell and Rachel Buchanan-Hughes and managed by Bethan Wyatt and Annabelle Norton-Smith. Quite a team. Thanks, guys. If you know anyone you think we should interview, if you want to tell your story or have your say, please reach out to me directly via podcast at pinpoint-media.co.uk. Remember, there's never a good time to start a business, but in business, you should always have a good time. Cheers, guys.